and welcome to the Point of Care Ultrasound Certification Academy podcast, where we focus on POCUS. Here, we will discuss all things related to Point of Care Ultrasound, the practice, the trends, and its impact on healthcare. Our program will engage thought leaders who are defining global patient care with the stethoscope of the future. James Day, live from the Focus on Pocus studio. Today, we have Dr. James Delaval as our honored guest. James Delaval is a 1977 graduate of the Medical College of Pennsylvania, which is now known as Drexel University School of Medicine. He trained in family medicine at the Abington Memorial Hospital in Abington, Pennsylvania, and has been licensed to practice medicine since 1978. His professional activities have been focused on those who live in rural areas and underserved populations, while also practicing emergency and family medicine. His current practice of emergency medicine is in an urban environment, caring for those who have limited access to health care. Dr. DelVal has served as medical advisor and a member of the Board of Trustees of Hands Together, an NGO working with the poorest of the poor in the Republic of Haiti for the last 15 years. Throughout his career, Dr. DelVal has been been and continues to be involved in undergraduate and graduate medical education. He has served as both a faculty member and residency program director. He is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Dr. Delaval is board certified in emergency medicine and family medicine and medical acupuncture. He holds certificates of added qualifications in geriatric medicine and hospital medicine from the American Board of Family Medicine and a certificate in tropical medicine from the University of Minnesota. He has been awarded fellowship by the American Academy of Medical Acupuncture and the American College of Emergency Physicians. He, is a cert- he has been certified by ARDMS in abdominal, cardiac, and vascular ultrasound. Wow. So how are you today, Dr. DelVal? Today is a rainy day in the southern tier of New York. So we're expecting about two inches of rain. So uh, I didn't bring my amphibious car, but I have my regular <laughs> car. So I should be able to, to get in and out pretty easily. So how are you today, James? I, I'm doing good. It's also raining down here. We have a lot of it's uh, rain from a hurricane. And, uh, you know, always makes me nervous in this mountainous terrain. You know, it's got nowhere to go. It doesn't really soak up like the sandy loom down south. Mm-hmm. So hopefully... Hopefully all will be well. And wow, such a long, illustrious career with all these alkaloids and alphabet soup behind your name. I, I don't even know where to start. Thank you. <laughs> it's impressive. Uh, a man's life all in front of me with all his great things that he's done. So what we have here is uh, just a little loose discussion on point-of-care ultrasound and its applications. So I'm going to ask a broad question, and I'm going to call it, you know, what is the promise of point-of-care ultrasound? Well, uh, James, that is, uh, it has uh, many different meetings. So the, the first is that a clinician can have a much better idea of the diagnosis of the patient in front of him by adding to their standard 19th century physical examination an ultrasound evaluation. So 
So no matter how good that I can be as a clinician, I cannot detect a pericardial effusion unless it's at the point where it's causing a person to be critically ill, as in cardiac tamponade. Mm -hmm. But by turning the ultrasound machine on and waiting 20 seconds and knowing what to look for, I can see it and tell you whether it's there or not. I can remember uh, not that several months ago, a woman who had a history of metastatic cancer uh, came to the hospital because she was short of breath. She had undergone multiple treatments and, you know, was in somewhat of a distress. <clears throat> what she ended up with was a malignant pericardial effusion, not because I could detect that with a regular chest x-ray or my physical examination, but I was able to pick up the effusion uh, with the ultrasound machine. And the diagnosis was made within three or four minutes of her arrival in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. To me, that's very powerful. And, and so, and, and that also, you know, the promise is as well as bringing technology, which previously resided in large facilities, hospitals, and other locations, that it's actually being able to be present in a clinician's pocket if you're using a pocket ultrasound machine. And so this is an incredible thing. It's a game changer. It, it changes the way you not only uh, make diagnoses, but also the way you think. And so the, the promise, in addition, becomes being a much better physician because of the fact that the anatomy that we studied, uh, you know, back in uh, a million years ago when I was in school, it was static. And then when you do ultrasounds, you see that it's very dynamic and it's not static at all. And it, it just and it renews, uh, at least it did for me at least, renewed a major amount of interest in my work simply because of the fact that I was exposed to another way of looking at the human body. Yes, that's, it is impressive. And it, like you said, become more and more an extension of the physical exam. So I know you do a lot of work over in, uh, down in Haiti, and um, I wanted you to, maybe you could talk about, you know, the point of care ultrasound in the third world, and why is it the time for it? For people in the third world, uh, it's, it's really hard uh, for most Americans to understand what, uh, how people live and what their lives are like who live in other countries, especially countries in the third world you know, that the access to medical care is limited or, or, or difficult. People sometimes have to travel multiple miles, sometimes by bus, uh, to get to a facility. Uh, imaging may or may not be present. Uh, in, when, in Haiti, for example, uh, the uh, government, for reasons that I'm not sure of, closed the hospital in a a city called Gonaive. It was the only hospital in the city. Mm. It's a university town. And so in order for people to have access to uh, different services that would be provided by the hospital, they have to get on a bus and they have to go for hours uh, in order to get to the next facility. And, you know, and, and that may not even be bad compared to some other countries where People will ride for 10 hours or 11 hours uh, in order to obtain medical care. And again, that may or may not be with imaging. And I'm not saying that imaging is the end of the rainbow, but what I am saying is that imaging assists 
in, in making a better diagnosis. It doesn't take the place of the history. It doesn't take the place of the 19th century exam, but it adds. And then, for example, with fracture care, you know, it's, you can diagnose a fracture without any difficulty uh, using a physical examination. However, given sometimes the multiple pieces that are present with a fractured bone, you may not be able to treat that fracture properly without having some kind of imaging available. And, and then when you're providing obstetrical care for people in order to identify pregnancies that are perhaps at higher risk, uh, having access again uh, to medical imaging can assist in identifying high-risk pregnancies, uh, diverting resources uh, as necessary to assist moms who are in a high-risk situation. So I think that in general, the third world extremely benefits from this technology because it adds to the definitive diagnosis being made uh, at the hopefully where the people are living instead of having to send them someplace else. Not in, and in addition, the, the extra costs that are generated by uh, having to go elsewhere for imaging. Yeah, and staying staying with the Haitian third world theme here, can you tell me a little bit more about your involvement with Hands Together and with the poorest of the poor in the Republic of Haiti? I think yeah, for so the last, uh, what, 15 years? 14, 15 years, yeah. Uh, I worked in the, uh, primarily in the slum district of Port-au-Prince called City Soleil. And City Soleil is population is about 300 to 400,000 people. Most of the people uh, came from the countryside uh, to seek a better life. And what they, where they live is they live in corrugated uh, tin shacks that interestingly they pay rent for. I didn't know that they actually paid rent for the places where they live. Wow. There's no running water, there's no toilet facilities. So people will stand in line for multiple hours to get a bucket of water from a spigot or tap or from a truck that will bring water into the area. And then they, you know, for going to the bathroom, they'll simply go outside or dig a hole. And, uh, and in City Soleil in particular, uh, an interesting dynamic is that it's right next to the ocean. So some of the buildings actually flood during high tide and and bring with them not only the waste that's floating around in the water, but also there's a large number of flies and, and other insects that are present, not to mention the rat population. So, you know, life is very difficult uh, in this part of the uh, Port-au-Prince and in this part of Haiti in particular. Their access to medical care is very, very limited. So and organizations, for example, like uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, mm-hmm. so, you know, they will go into an area that is, that is bad. If it becomes too bad, however, they will leave because it's dangerous, which I can understand. At the same time, if it becomes too nice, then they will leave. So they did have a couple of facilities in the... Uh, part of Port-au-Prince called City Soleil. And, but because, again, of urban violence, they would end up leaving 
then the only presence, at least as far as I knew, for medical care was Hands Together. Uh, what made Hands Together somewhat different was that Hands Together employed Haitian physicians. And so what would happen is that the work would go on uh, whether or not there were volunteers from the first world who had come down to uh, offer their assistance. So that's the, the area where I worked, and I would say that the unemployment is someplace around 80 to 90 percent. Mm. Uh, so it's a, you know, so gang violence is common. It's also a source of employment for people. And uh, so you could understand to some extent why people get involved in gangs, especially in a place like that. You know, wow, and they just had a, uh, I think it's a 5.2 earthquake in Haiti. It's right there on those two tectonic plates. And I, I believe uh, I read somewhere that 98% of the population is living on less than a dollar a day. Is that... Uh... Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Wow. It's, a, it's really incredible uh, that, that people live, that, you know, under those circumstances. And at the same time, you know, they seem to handle the, the desperate aspect of their lives in, an, in, in, a, in a way that I could only wish that I could be half as good as they. And, you know, for the most part, they... Uh, are uh, a cheerful people, uh, despite the fact that uh, there are limited uh, facilities for going to the bathroom and for mm-hmm. washing. But mm-hmm. many times people will take three showers a day. They use a eight-ounce tumbler cup and manage to soap up and clean up. And I have to say, since I've had the privilege of examining uh, people, uh, you know, in some of the more intimate circumstances, mm-hmm. I have to say that people were extremely clean. And when they wash their clothes, they do it with rocks. And so, you know, there's no washing machines. And But at the same time, you know, they wouldn't think uh, twice about, uh, you know, having shirts ironed because, uh, you know, uh, being publicly polite is a, is a very important thing. For the Haitian people, even the underwear, they will uh, iron the underwear, uh, uh, you know, just as part of their thing. So despite the fact that their housing is so limited, you know, people take great pride in their physical appearance. They shine their sneakers, uh, which I found myself, you know, when I looked at my own sneakers, I, I thought to myself, how can I do that? You know, <laughs> and, they're, and, and they're, they're, shi- they're shining theirs on a regular basis, you know, just just because that's the way to do it. Wow. So I have a lot of admiration for the people of Haiti and enjoy their company very much. And, and as I said to you at a previous time, you know, that they've, they certainly have given me more than I've given them. Mm-hmm. And they've made me, uh, I think, a, a better person for having had the opportunity to spend time with them. Yes. Wow. So, I, you know... Um... I was just thinking about your um, associate professorship and working at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. Um, Maybe you could speak about maybe some of the challenge of um, instructing point of care. Well, actually, James, you know that many of the schools do not have what I would call a robust curriculum in point of care ultrasonography. In fact, I just had a meeting uh, discussing this very point this morning before I had this interview. Uh, it seems like the medical school curriculum is, 
is bursting at the seams with many different requirements. And at the same time, a large number of the schools have very little time uh, for uh, ultrasonography training. Uh, it's hard to believe that, mainly because the fact that my prediction is that within five years that physicians will be, you know, uh, demanding training in this mode because most of them have not had any experience with it. And that it's been something that uh, imaging physicians, radiologists in particular, have done. But at the same time, you know, progress is progress, and and this is truly progress. It's not just modern or something new. It really is progress. So teaching uh, medical students in many ways is kind of easy simply because of the fact that they have been used to using uh, computers and mouse pads and other things that uh, are part of obtaining a diagnostic ultrasound image. So many times I'll just, I'll try not to say too much to the students and I'll just hand them the probe and I'll say, I want you to, to look at this for me and not give them a lot of instructions so that they're not trying to be right or to uh, do what I'm telling them to do. And I'm amazed at how quickly they're able without telling them much uh, the, to obtain quality images that could be used uh, for diagnostic purposes. So the skills are certainly there, but at the same time, I think that uh, schools, as they look at the amount of time, have to ask themselves the question, you know, how should they be spending that time? And I think uh, bedside evaluation of patients is important because you can save an incredible amount of money. I'll, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. I had a patient uh, about, I think it was a week ago, who came in and uh, wasn't sure whether she was pregnant or not. She had taken some uh, home pregnancy tests and some were positive, some were negative. I could have ordered a serum pregnancy test, which has a price, maybe it's $100. I put my point of care ultrasound probe on her and I saw a gestational sac, and I could see the embryo growing inside her, mm -hmm. and I could count the baby's heartbeat. I didn't have to order that test, you know, because I knew <laughs> she was pregnant. There wasn't <laughs> any doubt in my mind about it. And, you know, there are many, many stories that uh, I could tell that talk, you know, that speak to the value of this diagnostic tool, which, you know, uh, with uh, some of the newer products that are coming out, it's not very expensive at all. It's just a matter of uh, getting used to the fact of using it and becoming more comfortable with it. All good stuff. This has been awesome. You are a mighty man walking on the stage of life, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here on today's show. It's been an honor to have you on our podcast. James, thanks a lot, and uh, you know I look forward to uh, doing what I can to spread the good news of ultrasound. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, Focus on Pocus. Be sure to tune in with us next week for more interviews with thought leaders that are on the forefront of global point-of-care ultrasound.
The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not those of Intelios. This podcast is for information purposes only.